Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here to uh, open the Word of God and proclaim His truth. I was just thinking, you know, we have so many things to be thankful for this morning, and, you know, we're often burdened with so many things and issues in this life, but, you know, we're here, we're alive and well, and we're here together to worship the Lord, and He's given us so many things that pertain to practical things of this life, but uh, He gives us our physical food, so to speak, but He also gives us the spiritual meat, and uh, I'm so thankful for that, and we have so many things to be thankful to God for, time would fail us to really go through them all. Uh, but let's get into it here. I've decided um, I'm going to take a break from the Sermon on the Mount this week, and um, I believe the Lord has led me uh, to preach from Second Peter chapter 3, which is going to be our text. And um, I was partly inspired to preach this uh, from the Bible study we had Wednesday night. Uh, some of these things have already been on my mind, but that kind of pushed me over the edge. So uh, I really appreciate how that works and everything that um, God has shown me through all these things. And I, I preached from this text uh, this past Friday night, but I'm pleased this morning to preach it to somewhat of a different audience. So... Um, Let's read the text first. <clears throat> Chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day as with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Well, amen. This epistle of Peter is really, I'm going to call it, the epistle of remembrance. Many times during this epistle, Peter states his purpose is to remind us. I call you to remembrance. So it's a, the epistle of reminding, a call to remember fundamental truths of Christ's doctrine. Uh, we see that in chapter 1, verse 11 and through 13, he says this, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus, sorry, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. That's the theme of this epistle. The theme of Second Peter is clearly to call us to remembrance. 
Uh, notice he says, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. He says there, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, meaning in this life, in this body, I will stir you up by putting you in remembrance. In remembrance of what things? Well, sound doctrine, namely. Uh, let's see, chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. These things, he says, he's calling to put us into remembrance. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Mark that. That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped, mark that one, the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. So he gives a list there of things to be reminded of. Now, he doesn't stop there, but I want to pause there for just a minute. This is not the only things he's reminding us of because the focus of our text this morning is going to be how he ends this epistle is the reminder of the certainty of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to pause here because there's a couple things that you, we need to take notice of is that he is reminding us here that, we're to, that we have escaped from the corruption of this world through lust. You know, sin is a curse. It has cursed this world to the nth degree. And we see the, the, the devastation of sin all around some of us, even our own homes and families. Uh, we see the devastation of sin clearly. But God has brought us, not only forgiven us of sin, but he's taken us out from under the curse. We're no longer under the bondage of sin. Sin is a curse, and so we have escaped. Think of it as we have, but by the grace of God, we would be under that curse. We would be in the way of destruction, but we have escaped that. And he's, he's setting this as a reminder. And then he reminds us also that, yes, although we're saved by faith alone, we have a responsibility to God because he says, Add to your faith in verse 5. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and so on and so forth, to godliness brotherly kindness, all these things that are becoming of a, a child of God. So we're saved by faith, but there is a still a responsibility to God. Notice that it begins with faith. These works never produce faith, but from faith comes works. And so he says to add to your faith these things. Verse 8, he says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the true knowledge. Because there are many things that even the Apostle Peter, and we know about what the Apostle Paul was dealing with. There were many false teachers, many things that were calling themselves of Christ, that were of God, that they weren't. So he is talking about in contrary to false doctrine. Because you know many of the epistles, if not all of them to some degree, deal with addressing some kind of false doctrine. And so it is no different with Second Peter here. Um, if these things be in you, that is these true things then you'll not be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind 
and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. And then in verse 10, wherefore, make your rather brethren give diligence, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Sure to who? Well, not to God because he knows who are his. Uh, 2 Timothy uh, 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stand the sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So the, make your calling and election sure. That's, that's talking about assurance. Make it sure. Make sure you're in the faith, as Paul often said to the Corinthian church. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. So, as I said, he doesn't stop there. He finishes this epistle with a reminding, reminding us that Jesus is coming and the fullness of our hope should rest in that truth. These beginning, this, or sorry, this bringing to remembrance is also coupled with Peter warning about false teachers. Peter was already familiar with uh, the false teachings that was going on that was damaging the church. You know, he was aware of the, the, the people that Paul were dealing with and, and John, uh, Paul dealing with the Judaizers, John was dealing with the Gnostics. He was aware of all that. And so he was, he was keenly aware that false teachers had already caused damage, but he's also expecting that their heresy and their immoral living is going to cause further damage in the future. And so this is... Um, this transcends time. He's concerned about the church in the future. Now, it's commonly thought that, accepted, that uh, Peter died shortly after he wrote this epistle. Um, he was killed under Nero Caesar's persecution. Nero died in about 68 AD, and so we think that this epistle could have been written maybe a year before that and there is a sort of a tone of um, you know urgency here and um, that's important for us to know so he's writing to not only the people of his time but the future church don't forget that Jesus is coming in fact um, that's going to be the title of this message don't forget that Jesus is coming you see if we're not continually being reminded of these things then we're continually forgetting them we're, con we're in a state of forgetting and being deprived of them we're being deprived of the hope of the promises of God if we're not continually being reminded of them that's just our nature uh, we, we oftentimes bite off more than we can chew and we get bogged down with things in this life and we are so easily kind of distracted. So we have to be reminded. Now this is in addition to the fact that we have a tendency to forget. This is in addition to the fact, to the clear and present issue that, we, that there are countless false teachers seeking to lead you astray, away from the truth. So before we get too heavy into our text, it's important that we understand that there are active agents today within what is called Christianity that through their teaching would steer us away from fundamental truths, from the great hope of Jesus Christ's literal return. This, again, is on top of the fact that we are prone to forget anyway. That we're prone to not be mindful of that fact. There has always been, for a long time, people trying to steer the faithful away from this fact. It is a great and marvelous hope that Jesus Christ will return and set everything right. In this, the devil's agents have been working 
throughout history, throughout the ages, to distract and point to other things other than that. That is our ultimate hope. That's our ultimate hope that Christ will return and set everything right. That's, the, that's our future. That's, our, that's going to be our uh, inheritance. So Peter here stirs us up to remembrance. So as I said, there's many people that have impacted the church in a negative way to steer us away from this, these great promises, these, this great hope that in Christ's return. And they have influenced to very high levels, Christian seminaries, Christian universities. One man by the name of C.H. Dodd, a theologian that through the years has had his teachings impact and greatly influence uh, seminaries and Christian universities, as well as more contemporary seminary professors. C.H. Dodd said this, Since Jesus did not, in literal truth, return on the clouds of heaven within the 30 years after his ascension in the first century, to expect him to return in this century is to go contrary to primitive Christianity, which is true Christianity. This man has impacted Christian thinking and theology students. C.H. Dodd taught that the literal second coming of Christ was a myth. He said that the least significant myth is the second coming of the Lord and the future judgment. Rudolf Boltmann, who is apparently well known to uh, theological students, set out to quote, demythologize the New Testament. He said among the New Testament teachings that need to be demythologized and reinterpreted are heaven, hell, the resurrection, the second coming, and the future judgment. All these, he said, are not to be taken literally. That's a faulty hermeneutic. The point is, False teachers have crept in and have deceived many and have had a huge negative impact on these issues. And if we're not careful, we're susceptible to it. Of course, it's not going to come as a, you know, a direct attack like, hey, uh, the Lord Jesus' return is a myth. Because you're going to say, like many of you all, shake your head and say, well, that can't be true. The Bible says it. But it comes rather in subtle ways. It may come in a song or something that doesn't sound necessarily bad, but it, it, it causes your mind to drift off of that great truth of the Scriptures. It's, it's influence. It's the power of influence. And these men, unfortunately, has, have had an influence. And, you know, like I said, we have these epistles. So God works in it. God hasn't left us without any defense we have these epistles. These men were dealing with the same thing, and the apostles, they wrote about it. The point is, false teachers are there. And so what is the way that we combat these things? It's pretty simple. We go to the Word to be ever reminded of the truth. It's one reason why we're here today. Uh, it's one reason why we have Bible study and devotions and all these things that are centered around the Scriptures, to be constantly and ever reminded of the truths of God as a guard, as a protector of our own soul, in order for us to cling to the promises and have hope, even in times of trials and troubles, and to every suffering saint and Christian that's struggling out there, the Scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ is coming back. In literal form. And we'll set everything straight. So we see here, at the beginning of the last section of the epistle, here in, in chapter 3, the apostle keeps with his main theme. He starts off, I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. 
to make you mindful. Now, think about this. Being mindful of something, to have it at the forefront of your mind, we are able to process a lot of information at once. Uh, God has made our brains in such a way. But to have something at the forefront of your mind, to focus on it, to be mindful of it, to meditate on it, that's not to have it in the background just kind of tumbling around in there. There are times that we have practical things to do and we have to focus on jobs and work and all these things, but there has to be a time. We have to have discipline to make a time to be mindful of these things, and it needs to be more often. So he's causing a a, a remembrance to be mindful of. This is an important, very basic issue. Um that you cannot be reminded of and mindful of the Word of God unless you're what? You're in the Word of God. Continually in the Word of God. You must read your Bible every day, maybe multiple times a day. Charles Spurgeon said to read many books but live in the Bible, live in the Scriptures. It's our lifeblood. The very first psalm says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. We have to be in the Scriptures. If we're going to be reminded of its great truths and be uh, walking not in the counsel of the ungodly. You know, I, I think about this statement that he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't sit in the way of, of the scornful. The man of God does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not give credence to the world's lies. He does not give place to false doctrines and fables. Instead, he clings to the word of God. And then it says he's blessed for it because he knows the promises of it and are certain. And not only does he knows it, he meditates on it and he holds on to it. To to know something, to have information is one thing, but to really cling to it, believe it, is something different. He clings to it. The man of God, he doesn't give give credence to fables and, and, and false teachings, lies of the world. No, he clings to the word of God. The man of God is what modern progressives would call narrow-minded. And so be it. I'm narrow-minded. He, the man of God is not open-minded, meaning he just goes along with which, whether the wind blows. He's not open-minded. That would be simple-minded. He's closed-minded, holding firmly and grasping with all his might the Word of God and holding on to it as his life, as his defense, as his source of blessings. The evangelist Ray Comfort said that when he spent some brief time as a pastor, he said he, he didn't make it very long because every time a congregate would bring their problems and issues to him, he'd point them to the first psalm. And he'd say, are you reading your Bible every day and meditating on God's Word? And oftentimes the answer would come back, no, I'm not. And he would tell them, then I can't help you. Because the Bible says, uh, Psalm 1 says that you won't be blessed unless you read the Scriptures, unless you believe, meditate on the Word until you do that. I could counsel you till we're blue in the face and it ain't going to matter. Any counsel I give, it's not going to help you because the true help is in the Scriptures. So we must live in the Scriptures and constantly be reminded. Notice also what he specifically says to be mindful of. The words of who? The holy prophets and of the apostles. That is the entire Bible summed up in that. Now, we need to understand that this, what he's basically saying, 
is that this is making the words of the apostles on the same level as the Old Testament prophets. He's putting the apostles' words on the same level. He's saying that what we're saying is also the Word of God. It's equal the Word of God as the, as the prophets. In fact, a lot of the things they were saying, most of it was quoting the Old Testament prophets. So I want to point that out. That's very important. To be in remembrance. He's stirring us up. And that their word there is on equal footing with the prophets of the Old Testament. The apostles are saying these things as they're led by the Holy Spirit. Let's go back and look at chapter 1, uh, verse, uh, let's go 16 to 21. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He's emphasizing there something. He's emphasizing, he's saying, look, that the prophets did not devise some scheme like these false teachers. They didn't just come up with this stuff on their own. No, they were led by the Holy Spirit. They didn't come up with their own uh, elaborate fable. No, they were directed by divine inspiration. It says in verse 21, they spake as we're moved by the Holy Ghost. And we need to mark that. Because the words of God are powerful and the words of man don't hold the same weight. And so, this, basically he's saying this is in contrast to the false teachers. That by their own devices and their wicked imaginations, they speak not of divine direction but by their own lust and pride. Remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and said, you know, you, you circumnavigate the globe and you go here and there and you seek to make uh, proselytes and you make them uh, twofold the child of hell than yourself. They, they're, they're seeking to get followers for themselves. They're, not, they're pointing to themselves, not the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course they'd point away from his return and the great promises of God because they're trying to exalt themselves. And so... This is in contrast. It seems to be always a contrast that we're dealing with when we're dealing with the truths of the Holy Scripture. In fact, the very fact that God is good means that something is evil. There is a contrast there is a disagreement between good and evil. Jesus said, don't think I came to bring peace but a sword. In other words, he came to, to have a disagreement with evil. So these false teachers, they didn't get their teachings from God or the Holy Spirit. They have devised fables. This is not the case with the prophets and the apostles. And so... Peter is saying, that's not what we have spoken. That's, that's not what we're about. Don't let them persuade you away from the truth. Remember what the Scriptures say. Remember what we had spoken. Remember what the prophets said. You need to go back to, 
to the word what God said. Remember what the prophets said. Remember what we have spoken. We, the apostles, just like the prophets of old, speak as the Lord directs. What they're seeking, these false prophets, what they're seeking to do is to turn people away from the promise of Christ's return. And so then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. This is very interesting to me. There's going to be false teachers. There always has been. There will continue to be. Uh, We have to be... The reason that's important to understand is because there needs to be a level of, of guarding. Uh, we understand that there's, you know, wicked things in this world. We don't just let anything into our homes. We shouldn't just let anything into our minds. And if you're not, you know, I know that many, most people here probably read the Bible every day. But if you don't, and, and I know that was difficult for me. I didn't fully grasp that importance of that until I got a little bit older. So if you're young, take heed of this because... If you're not constantly in the Word of God, if you're not meditating, if your desire is not in His Word, you are so open and susceptible to being just swept away by lies. And that's the, that's the we're going to see some more of that as we get into it, but that's the, the main issue of our society today. It just being swept away with, you know, new age stuff and, and, and lies of the world that just spring up because people aren't on guard with the truth. And this here, I mean, he says they'll bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. I don't know if he's talking about, you know, this guy was once a believer and now he's, well, I'm denying that the Lord Jesus ever existed or he's trying to, to put that, more likely, I think he's trying to put that on other people to get others to deny the Lord that bought them. So let's first understand that there's always been scoffers and mockers. Just as false teachers go way back, false teachers go way back. So do scoffers. And mockers, but the emphasis is on the last days. He's saying so. He's not saying when he starts in verse or chapter three. He's not saying uh, that verse three, knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers. He's not saying there wasn't scoffers then. It's just the emphasis is on the last days. He's concerned about the future state of the church, and so the emphasis is on the last days. The emphasis also here is what specifically they're scoffing and mocking at. And that is in particular the literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have been in the last days since Jesus came, was crucified, rose again, and ascended. We've been in the last days since then. So when we say the last days, uh, it's really since Christ came. Everything before Christ was leading up to Christ. Now, everything after him is waiting on him. We're in the last, we would, it, we'd, re, we'd say the last age. We're in the last age, right? So, we're in the, the last days really means the last age. There's only one thing left before the completion of the age. And that's the second coming of Christ. So the emphasis is on the, the future 
mockers and scoffers, but also on what they're mocking at here, scoffing at. And that's the second coming of Christ. That's the, you know, the fact that he will return. Now, the reason they are scoffing at the Lord's return is that they're walking after their own lust. Notice that. Verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. That's the reason they're mocking and scoffing. Because they're walking after their own lust. The issue is not a lack of evidence. There's not a lack of evidence in the scriptures. There's not a lack of evidence in Christ's uh, coming and, and being crucified and the fact that he will come again, all the things that he said. There's no lack of evidence. It's not a logical, reasonable objection. That's not the issue. It's purely based on their own lust that is leading them. Now here's what they say in verse 4. This is their great objection here. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is, where is Jesus, guys? Y'all have been saying that he's coming back for so long now. Where is Jesus? Where's the promise of his coming for since the fathers fell asleep? All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. This is like saying, well, they say I'm going to die, but I'm not dead yet, so it must not be true. You see, they are, they're reaching all the way back to the patriarchs. They're reaching as far back as they can and saying, look, ever since the beginning, everything just keeps going the same way. People have said, Jesus is coming back. You've been saying it. People will keep saying it. And where is he? That's, that's how they're, it's not really even an argument. It's a mocking. Yes. It's, a, it's a mocking that's being, that's coming from their own lust. So where is the promise of his coming, they say, in a, in a prideful, jeering way. I've preached on this thing, and I've seen people just, you know, give me the hand like that, like, whatever. Same thing. That's their reasoning. Well, everything is just continuing on as it always has. It's a pitiful, ridiculous argument. This is the same incoherent argument of the self-proclaimed atheist who deny the obvious truth that God created the world. They use the teaching of evolution to justify the denial of God. That's basically what evolution is. It's uh, uniformitarianism. It's just another form of it. Uniformitarianism, which means that everything that exists, every, the world is just a process of uniform um, biological, ecological processes that just keep going over the span of millions of years. And so that's what evolution says, the same thing. Do you know uh, Peter predicted evolution here in Second Peter chapter 3? I mean, it's the same thing. The, the point is, is that that's really nothing new. This idea of uniformitarianism, it's really nothing new. It's the same incoherent argument we see in evolution. And they, it's not, it's not a... a a logical claim. It's based on their desire to deny God. There is a desire in the human heart to deny God, to deny Him what's rightfully His, to deny His ownership of the world and ourselves, to deny Him of His glory. There, in, in the natural man, there is an idol factory that denies God. And then when you have some elitists come along and say, look, this is the reason why there's no God, and they, they bring this you know, far-fetched teaching and idea and they put it right in your face, of course people are going to run after it because it relieves the sinful heart of the consequences of sin. The issue is not logical. The issue is moral, you see. There is no desire for God in the natural man. There is a desire for the opposite to dethrone God. 
They deny the obvious truth that God created the world. They use the teaching of evolution to justify their denial of God. And the Holy Spirit, through Peter, prophesied that mockers would come and use this same lie to continue walking in their own lust and lead many astray. And they have. As I said, this is uniformitarianism, uh, which is that the world's history has only consisted of uniform natural geological processes from the beginning. So if the world is the way it is today, then it must have always been this way, is what they say. And therefore, the things that exist do so as a product of natural geological processes. And that's why they have to have the millions of years stuff. That's why you're ridiculed for being someone who believes the Bible and believing what they call a young earth. It's just, it's just the earth. I mean, young earth is just something that they have labeled to mock, to make it sound stupid. <clears throat> it's an unprovable and is merely a story and gimmick that people use to fuel their denial of God, <clears throat> excuse me, so to not be responsible to him. And this belief was popularized modernly by Charles Darwin. Now he, through many studies, surmised that all life evolved from a single-cell organisms, in other words, molecules to man over billions of years. There is no evidence to support this. There, there's no evidence in the fossil record. They'll always point to the fossil record, uh, these quote-unquote elite scientists, and say, we have the proof. But really, in the fossil record, all you have are the bones. So they say we come from apes. All you have is the bones of men and the bones of apes. And then they have, all these, they have thousands of missing links. They say, well, we're just trying to find the missing link. But really, there's thousands of them because there's no, nothing to show any kind of progression of apes to man. Also, by the way, there's still apes. I mean, so it's ridiculous. Now, Darwin had all kinds of studies, but I just want to touch on a couple things real quick about that um, because we need to bust through that lie. Um, all the evidence that scientists point to is not Darwinian evolution, as in molecules to man, but it's rather adaptation. Uh, for example, Darwin pointed to, uh, in his book, Origin of Species, he pointed to, it's called Darwin's finches. He had studied uh, finches, the bird, on the Galapagos Island. And he noticed that some finches had different shaped beaks, and some were longer, some were shorter. And he said, oh, these must have evolved over so many, you know, millions of years as to be able to eat different kinds of food and, and different things. But the point is, is they're still finches, they, there, there is no evidence of jumping from one kind to another or one species to another. There's what we call that, science really calls that adaptation. Of course, there's different, you know, variations within a species, but there's never no jump from one species to another. There is absolutely no evidence for that. But yet, it's taught as the absolute truth on all college campuses and public schools teaching children that? And then we find, really, it's not science. It's a religion. It's another religion. It's idolatry when it comes down to it. These false teachers cannot find God the same way a criminal cannot find a police station. Listen to this quote from Sir Arthur Keith. Now, this guy was a, um, Sir Arthur Keith was a physical anthropologist. He wrote the foreword to Darwin's Origin of Species 100th Year Anniversary Edition. And he said this, quote, Evolution is unproved and unprovable. We believe it only because the only alternative is special creation, and that is unthinkable. This is what he said. And so therein lies the truth. They are scoffing and mocking because they're led by their own lust. They're led by their desires to sin, 
by their desire for immorality, to sin without consequence. They don't want to, they don't want to believe that there's a coming judgment. And so they deny it in all these forms and various ways. It amazes me that the Bible, in all of God's wisdom, shattered these false teachings before they even began. Think of it. It deals with the false teachers and false prophecies before, they, before we were born, before they were born, certainly. And I know all of this has been going on. They repackage it, but the Bible deals with it all. It doesn't leave any stone unturned. You see, they will not have God to rule over them. That's the point. They do not seek God, but will seek any reason or excuse to absolve them from their responsibility to God. So this idea of evolution, molecules to man, which is nothing times nothing equals everything. This idea is another form of uniformitarianism, which did not start with Darwinian evolution. That's just a Johnny-come-lately. So, where is the sign of his coming, they say? This is a scoff, a mock, as it's called in Jude, verse 18. Jude calls it their mockings. Peter says scoffing. The, the Greek word is the same. It means to jeer or sneer at, uh, to poke fun of. It's meant to justify their own disbelief and to ridicule and discourage the belief of the followers of God and the hope that the Christian has in the return of Christ. And I'm sad to say that it has undoubtedly influenced us in that way. It has had an inkling of success. It certainly has because you even see professing Christian churches today getting on board with this. Uh, well, you know, maybe that's how God did it. Maybe he caused everything to evolve, but that's not what God said, you see. So already that undermines his word. It comes in subtly, and it's possible. I'm going to say it's possible that for many of us sitting here today, it has discouraged us in our hope that Jesus Christ is returning because it is such a ridiculous notion to the world. And we, on some level, desire to be you know, liked or at peace with the world, and so we, don't, we definitely don't want to be viewed as ridiculous or, you know, I mean, oh, we don't want to be viewed as these people who believe in flat earth or something, you know what I'm saying? And so we, we, don't, we let it discourage us. It's, got, it's high time that we just really stop caring. The world's going to do what it's going to do. It's going to say what it's going to say. But we have to hold fast to the truth. And we'll be blessed for that. The church will have more power. We'll have more influence over the society if we really hold fast to these truths. I don't care how long it's been. I know Jesus is coming. He might not come back in my lifetime. He might. The Bible says that we ought to expect him. But I'm going to hold fast to that truth. Because if that truth is undermined, this is the, this is the problem. If that truth is undermined that Christ is coming back, that he's going to set up a literal kingdom, that he is going to um, break the, the bonds of evil, if that's undermined, then our ultimate victory is undermined. Is, is Christ ultimately victorious? Of course he is. Are, are we ultimately victorious with him? Yes, of course he is. Of course we are. According to the scriptures. Let's remember that. Let's, be, let's let these words put us in mindfulness of that. Now, this is very similar to the mocking uh, that's back in Isaiah 5.19. Let's look at that real quick. Isaiah 
we'll see that it's nothing new. Almost an identical thing, really. Isaiah 5.19, they say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. You see how familiar, how, how similar that is? Oh, everything's the same. Nothing changes. It's always going to be the same. Well, if God's going to judge us, then let him come. Let him do it. When's he going to come? Y'all been saying he's going to come? Let him make speed, they say. Let him, let him hasten. It's like you've heard those people say, well, if God is real, then strike me down right now. Another mock and another jeer. You know, it's pretty arrogant of man to think that he can alter God's timeline. Same kind of vein of mocking here. Let him make speed. Let the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. They still wouldn't believe it. Jesus said if one was raised from the dead, they wouldn't believe it. They say, well, if God's going to judge, then let's, let's see Him do it. Let's see Him do it. Y'all been preaching that the Lord will come and judge? Well, hurry up and let's see God do it. You see, what they do is they deny world history. They, they deny, they don't necessarily forget it because it says in verse 5, they're willingly ignorant of it. Mark that. Willingly ignorant of it. Verse 5 and 6. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now, what are they willingly ignorant of? The flood? They're ignorant of the fact that God has judged the world already. Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is already revealed against ungodliness. They're ignorant of that fact. They, it's a willful ignorance. In other words, they see it and they turn away from it. They don't want to see it. They don't want to hear about it because they're enjoying their sin. They're ignorant of the flood. Now, it's a rewriting of world's history. Now, Darwinian evolution is taught in every university, in the public schools, to young people. It's a rewriting of world history. The real history of the world is not uniformitarian that everything's just gone on the same way. The truth is that there have been two major cataclysmic events that have shaped the world that we live in today. That's one, the creation, and two, a global flood. The world is the way it is today with its mountain ranges and how it looks and the, you know, the, the weather and everything because of those two cataclysmic events, the creation and the flood. And they willingly forget that judgment. They, willing for, they willingly forget all of the judgments that God has uh, you know, put forth through the ages. They willingly forget that God destroyed everything in the flood. Because that points to the fact that what God had promised then, and he brought it to fruition, didn't he? That points to the fact that his promise about this next judgment will come to pass. And so, I don't want to hear it, they say. They rewrite world history. And then they teach it to everybody else. And they, they think, well, this is, this is what most people believe. So, see, it's justified. I don't care if you're the only one in a place that believes the Word of God. You stand on it. You stand on it firmly. You stand on it boldly. Because you might be the one that leads somebody out of that lie. You see, God uses His people as a beacon of truth to a light in a dark world. 
Now, here's something that's real sad about this Darwinian evolution thing. Each time the apostles preached the gospel to the Gentiles, what did they do? When they preached it to the Jews, they, they went back to the law. They went back to the prophets and said, look, see, Jesus, he is the Messiah. When they preached the gospel to the Gentiles who didn't have the law, who didn't have the Old Testament prophets, they used creation. They used creation. Paul did that in Acts 17. He said, look, let me tell you about the unknown God. He's the one who created everything. Well, if you can get people to believe that nothing times nothing equals everything, you just cut them off from effective evangelism. You just cut them off. That's a sad thing. And there's a lot of people who believe that, that nothing times nothing equals everything. And so we got to remind them of the truth. Now, 2 Timothy 4.8 identifies believers as those who love his appearing. That love his appearing. So we know that when the Lord comes again, he's coming to set everything straight. He's coming to judge the wicked and destroy the wicked. He is coming to set up his rule, his righteous rule, his righteous kingdom. As it says in Psalm 2, he will rule with a rod of iron and break the heathen like a potter's vessel. Do you think that's something that they would want to retain in their knowledge? That they would want to remember? That they want to know? No, they don't want to know. But we got to tell them anyway because it's the truth. Just simple fact that it's the truth that needs to be told. Just the fact that something is true dictates that it's got to be told. We should remind them. Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 7 is saying that just as the global flood was promised and God fulfilled that promise, so it is with the judgment to come which will be by fire. That's how God works. He makes a promise every time keeps it. Every time. And so that ought to encourage us. It's really a, a bad news thing to the people who are just dead set on rejecting God. But it's good news for us. Because we don't have to, we're not going to be in this same condition of suffering and dealing with sin forever. There's coming a time when that's going to be over. You know, we go through a lot of hard things, but the, what we always look forward to is it's going to be over. I'll get through this. We're going to get through this because Jesus is coming back. We will, the, the, the gates of hell will not prevail over the church. Jesus will come back. And so just like he promised there's a there was a global flood that's going to happen. He told Noah, and it, Noah was described as a preacher of righteousness. So there was a warning to the people. They mocked and scoffed too. Oh, a global flood? Yeah, right, Noah. And then it happened. And just like there in that time, there was a sudden destruction. I mean, it just came on all at once. Everybody was just doing their same old daily routine. And all of a sudden, the flood came, and everyone was destroyed. It'll be the same way. People are going to be mocking up until the last minute. Uh, but sudden destruction will come. Jesus will return. Verse 8 through 10. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 8 through 10 is a reminder to us, the people of God, that we have his guarantee that he's coming. Don't be ignorant. Don't be without this blessed promise. We should live every day with the expectation of his coming. You know, when I, when I go out of town or something and I'm gone away from home for a while, uh, I look forward to getting home and, and my family looks forward to seeing me. They're expecting me to come and they are happy about my appearing. That's the same way we ought to... Uh, that's our relationship with the Lord Jesus. I mean, we're waiting for him. We're desiring him to come. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly, the scriptures say. Now, 
We can also be willingly ignorant of his return if we're not careful. So we're talking about the false teachers, but now it's dealing with us. I'm not going to have time to read it, but Matthew 24 basically talks about the wicked servant. It says, my master delays his coming. And because he thinks that way, he mistreats his fellow servants. He, he thinks he's going to get away with it because his master, he, he says, well, my master's not coming today. I don't have to worry about it. Think about it. If we sin and we think, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness tomorrow. I'll repent. We're saying my master delays his coming. He's not coming today. I have time. I'll, I'll repent tomorrow. I know we all fall into sin. I'm not saying that, um, you know, I'm no different. But let's not be that way. Let's not be that way. He doesn't delay his coming. If we get caught up in the affairs of this world, in this life too much, we become negligent. We become negligent and, and we forget the promises that he's supplied and, and of his return. And I'm almost done, guys. We see here also the Lord's concept of time is not like our own. In fact, he's outside of the realms of time. Our time is measured by him. We live in 2024 A.D., Anto Domini, which is in the year of our Lord in the Latin. Time is literally measured by Jesus Christ before and after him. So I can just quote the date, and I'm already giving a testimony of Jesus' uh, glory. That's all i got to do. No man ever did that, split time. But his, his measure of time is not like ours. A thousand years could go by, and it's like a day to him. He's, he's eternal. He's outside of time. And so, verse 9, he says he's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to who? To usward. Uh, this is talking about, he's talking to the people of God. Remember in verse 8, he starts off saying, but beloved, but beloved, be not ignorant. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men, men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's all those that he's chosen. That's all those that he has, that, that are his, that are his elect, that, that the effectual working of the cross has accomplished for. He's not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness. Some men count slackness because they're thinking in terms of their humanity, their flesh. But to us, remember, he's speaking to believers, and he's, you know, he's saying, listen, beloved, what is the purpose of his waiting? What is the purpose of his delaying? He's giving time, time to bring people to repentance. His own patience, his long-suffering, giving the lost time for repentance and faith. Because once it's over, it's over, a merciless judgment. In other words, it's saying God is not lazy. He's not forgotten. He's not fallen asleep. He's not falling asleep at the wheel. He's waiting because of his divine character and long suffering and mercy. His delay follows according to his plan. Now, verse 10, and I'm done. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. There's really so much to that that we could talk about. But basically, it says that the day will come. It's near. The day will come. Don't forget it. Don't forget that. 
or be deceived. Don't, don't, don't let somebody deceive you. It's going to come as a thief in the night when the world least expects him. When they say, oh, he's not going to come. When they say peace and safety and everything's fine. My master delays his coming. He's not coming today. Just as the flood came suddenly, he'll come. He will come. And there'll be a total destruction. Everything will be burnt up, it says. But one final thing for us who are in Christ. I want to jump down to 13, even though this is not included in my text. I want to jump to verse 13, because this is a good way to finish it. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The earth that currently is, is ruled by the power of darkness, we look for a new heaven, a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And as Jesus said, Whoever, whosoever thirsts and hungers for righteousness, they'll be filled. So do not forget that he's coming. Whatever you're going through, whatever evil that's out there in the world that looks like it's winning, Jesus is coming. God bless you.